Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Good morning, family. Um, I want I want to give an incredibly important uh, principle of the Christian life this morning as we move into worship. The Bible often refers to Christians as a family. The, the Christian people in the church is a family. That's something that's re- reiterated again and again in Scripture. Actually, I'm going to give a few examples. Paul um, refers to us as, as a family, and when he sends Onesimus back to his master, he sends him with a letter that asks Philemon, who is his, his master, to consider Onesimus as a brother as opposed to a servant. Now, this has massive implications as opposed to seeing um, him as a servant, as a brother. Um, and then God, later in, in 1 John 3, 1, he refers to himself as a father, and he, do, he refers to himself as a father again and again in Scripture. It says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. So we're not biologically brothers and sisters, nor is God biologically our father, but under his banner of fatherhood, we are each his adopted children, which implies that we are also siblings to one another. Now, this is an incredible uh, facet of Christian life for several reasons, right? Okay, it gives groundwork for uh, how we ought to treat each other. Okay, we ought to treat each other as, as siblings, as brothers and sisters. It also shows our relation toward one another, that under God, we're his children, and we are all equal as his children. It also means that anyone who is a disciple of Jesus is a part of his family. So no matter what family background you may have, you're a part of the family. Some have been blessed with their families, and some have come from terribly broken families. But all of us are a part of the family of God as sons and daughters to the only good father. So church, I challenge you this morning that no matter what your family dynamic may look like, that you consciously consider the incredible blessing of being a part of God's family. So we're people from various backgrounds, right? We have various lifestyles. We have people from Nigeria, from from Louisiana, from Kansas, from the Philippines, from Togiak, from England. But we're all under the banner of Christ, unified as a family with one mind. Now this is an incredible dynamic that people across the globe and that people across time share a father. This is a dynamic that only God is capable of orchestrating. So church, I invite you this morning to worship, and I invite you to worship as a family, the family that God has created and orchestrated. Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you so much for the family dynamic that you've given us, that you've compelled us to truly care for one another. Lord, you've compelled us to live as as Christians that are like you, that we are Christ-like Christians. Lord, so help us to be the people that you call us to be and help us to set our minds on you as we worship. And Lord, help us to truly worship as a family this morning, Lord, as your family and as your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let's take a few minutes and look in, into the scriptures today. Uh, what I want to talk about is good news, and if it's old news, it's really even great news uh, of what Christ has done for us. And uh, from where we sit, it might seem a little bit strange that at one time, it wasn't this easy to get to God. There used to be a time when it was uh, rather difficult, and the reason for that is that God, um, God couldn't, he couldn't uh, suffer sin, if that makes sense. He needed to, and there needed to be a barrier, and, and humankind needed to know that we can't go on in our sinfulness, and he's a holy God, and so the holy God Needed to re- needed people to recognize that there needed to be distance between his holiness and the sinfulness of humanity, and so he created uh, a way that people could approach him. And so, in the Old Testament, um, he set up a tabernacle, a place where people could come and to recognize uh, his presence. And uh, there was uh, the priesthood of the Levites that offered sacrifices again and again. And one time a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest alone could go into the sacred room where the Ark of the Covenant was and offer atonement for himself and for the sins of the people. And in so doing so, uh, God said, I'll let my presence dwell here. But there was limited access. Only one person, only of a certain clan, only 
uh, only of a, a certain kind that could enter into the Holy of Holies. But that's been opened up for us through Christ. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. It was interesting. Um, I've had a group of guys that have been praying for me before services. And one of the things that was prayed, uh, Gary prayed it this morning. Where are you, Gary? All right, Gary prayed it this morning, that God would help us to restore the temple that's within us. And uh, that's really fascinating because today I want to talk about how God has uh, given us access to his presence so that we ourselves become the temple of God. Uh, So that was totally appropriate. We talked about walls coming down, and that's the very thing we want to talk about here is that God brought walls down. We sang about that. And so I love it when there's a sense of unity to what God is doing in a moment, and he's doing that here. And I think he wants to remind us of something that's very important. So uh, it may seem strange that those things happen, but there were events that took place within a 50-year period, and perhaps you could even include up to a 100-year period, that changed everything. It changed everything from that old system. The Son of God came in the flesh. One of the things that we talk about around Christmas time is that his name shall be called what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so God comes in the flesh. Uh, Then Christ, he dies for our sins and he rises again. And it opens up to us an access to God that we didn't have before. And then just a little time after that, within about a five-week period of Christ rising from the dead, we have something else take place. Anybody want to venture a guess? Pentecost. And at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends upon humanity. And if you remember, there was a, a fireball that came into the room where they were. And it separated into little flames, and it went on the heads of each of them. And what that was saying symbolically was that the tabernacle, like in the Old Testament, there was a the tabernacle where people met with God, and the flame hovered above that. It's a fire by night that hovered above that. And uh, so that symbolism was brought into the New Testament, into that room collectively. You all, the Bible says at times in plural, are the temple of the Holy Spirit together. But then that flame split, and it went out, and it sat upon each person that was in the room. And that says that not only are we collectively the temple of the Holy Spirit, but we are individually the temple of the Holy Spirit. Aren't you glad for that? That we don't have to come to church to to have God's presence. God's presence is with us wherever we go in Christ. And so we come to this story that we're going to look at today here in Luke 23. We come to it in the middle of the crucifixion. And I won't tell you all the details. You can read all of that, and it's um, tragic and magnificent at the same time. He's just promised the thief on the cross that today you'll be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And the, the promise to this man is only made possible because Jesus is there paying the price for his sins. Have you ever thought about that? That the only reason Jesus can fulfill that promise is that simultaneously, As that man is dying on the cross, he himself is dying on the cross, covering that man's sins. That's uh, that's to me is fascinating. I think there's depths to that that we could explore. But because of that, that sacrifice, that payment of redemption happening at that moment, this man who was who recognized himself that he was a sinner today, he could be that day he could be with Christ in paradise. So the sacrifice of Christ will open for this man the way of God's presence, just like it does for you and me. And we can only know God because Jesus has made the way. We can only know him because he's made the way. We can only be with him for eternity because he's paid the price. And so as we look at this story, I'd like you to notice some things that happen here. Let's look at verse uh, 44, and we'll read through verse 49. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. Now, you might be thinking as we look at this, it sounds like some things haven't been said. Let's remember that in different gospels, different things are emphasized. And so 
Matthew's gospel, for example, tells a little bit more about some of the details that are taking place. But Luke, to serve his purposes, keeps it very concise and narrow. Verse 47, the centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. And when all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and they went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. And so we came to this story in the middle of the crucifixion. But I'd like you to notice some things that happened and we'll dwell on one thing in particular. Matthew reports more. Luke only needs to mention these things for his purpose. The first thing I'd like for you to mention is that this is taking place at noon till about 3 in the afternoon. That some darkness set in. Darkness set in until 3 in the afternoon. And in fact, it says here that the sun stopped shining. The sun stopped shining. And I think that's a, an interesting thing that it would say that the sun, the sun stopped shining. Do we, do we take that literally? Or do we understand that to mean something else? This morning, uh, I woke up early, and it was extra early because of the time change. And I looked out the window. I've been looking for northern lights to see if northern lights are, are out. Anybody see the northern lights in the last couple of days? I don't even know if there are any. I'm not suggesting you missed it. I'm just asking because I wonder. So anyway, I looked out. And, and this is a great time to talk about it, isn't it? Well, I looked out, and uh, what I saw was the moon sitting in the sky. It was amber-colored, and it was in the east. And it was just looked like it was sitting on the mountains uh, over there. And uh, the sun hadn't yet come up. And then I, and, and this is true, I saw a shooting star go past. And I remember thinking when you see a shooting star, you're supposed to make a wish. And then it occurred to me, I don't believe that because I'm not superstitious. So I didn't make a wish. But those things really happen, right? They happen in a way. Because the moon wasn't really sitting there. It was orbiting around the planet, suspended in air. Are you with me? And... The, it wasn't a shooting star, it was a meteorite that went past, not a star at all. And you know that the sun hadn't come up really means that the earth and us on it hadn't rotated towards where the sun could shine on our land. We talk about things from our perspective like that, don't we? And so when it says the, stu- the, sun, sh- the sun stopped shining, it doesn't mean that that all of a sudden the gas ball stopped being ignited at that moment. It means that for that period of time, God kept darkness over the land. There's some theories about that. One theory is that there was some kind of an eclipse that took place, but that would have been really strange because the Passover happens in a full moon phase. And so if there's a full moon, you can't have an eclipse at the same time. Are you with me? Okay, so that's a problem. Another uh, theory on that is that a Sirocco wind blew in sand from the east and covered up the sun. And then there's another theory, which is going to sound crazy, but God just didn't let the light hit the land at that particular time, but the warmth he let through. I know that sounds like a cop-out, but we serve a big God. Who can do that? So whatever reason it is that uh, the sun didn't get through, there's a prophecy that suggested that this would take place in Amos chapter 8, verse 9. It says, In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And the significance of this and why it's so striking that this would take place in that moment is that you expect noon to be the brightest part of the day. Right? The sun's overhead. I mean, not noon in Alaska, obviously, in the wintertime, but noon in other places that are more normal. So we have the sun uh, ceasing to shine, or at least darkness falling upon the land during that time. And then the second thing, which I just want to mention here, because we're going to deal with this in some more detail, is that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The the curtain of the temple is torn in two. All right? And then a third thing that happens is that Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. He cries out in a loud voice. He, he quotes from Psalm 31, 5, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. So he's, he's quoting out of the Psalms. 
And what this suggests is that at that dying moment that Christ still has hope beyond the grave. And he's looking, he's looking to the Father to vindicate him. An interesting thing, uh, maybe interesting to you, I don't know, it's interesting to me, is that later in rabbinical uh, tradition, people would quote Psalm 31 before they went to bed. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Man, what a great prayer right before you go to bed, right? An even greater prayer and a greater faith, it would suggest, to pray that when you're dying an, an unjust death. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And he leaves his vindication with God, and with this hope, Jesus dies. It says the next thing that happens is when he said this, he breathed his last, which means that he, he exhaled for the last time, and he gives up the ghost. He's, he, he dies. And I think Luke wants us to acknowledge these things are signs. Notice uh, in the next few verses here of the centurion, the general crowd that's there, and then those that are, are there because they're loyal to Jesus. It, says, it uses these verbs regarding them. It says, seeing, saw, and watching. So Luke wants us to recognize that they, they're looking at this. They're eyewitnesses to these signs, these portents, these omens, if you will, of things that are happening, and they've seen it all go down, and there's certain reactions to it. The centurion he saw what happened, and he praised God, and he said, surely this is a righteous man. Now, if you remember Matthew and Mark, they say, surely this is the Son of God. And what Luke is doing for us is I think he's trying to draw out the meaning of that, and at least the, the application. He's recognizing that this man is truly righteous. The Son of God is truly righteous, and so he suffered innocently. This is one of the the Gentiles who's standing there, who's taken part in the crucifixion, is that he's recognizing, I was wrong. So Luke reports this. And he would have known, I don't know if you know about Luke's gospel at all, but Luke tells us when he's opening up his gospel, he's setting out for somebody named Theophilus, and he says, I've uh, taken great pains to set out an orderly account and he uses eyewitnesses, and we get the impression that Mary is one of those eyewitnesses, and Mary is there at the cross, and so these could be uh, her recollections of the events that took place. And one of them would have been a centurion who said, praise God, surely this was a righteous man. And then all the people, it says, they saw what took place. They beat their breasts and they went away. Deep-seated grief and regret had filled them because they saw the events which changed their mind about Jesus. These might have been those who had been among the crowd that were yelling, crucify him, and were ready to see uh, blood. And, you know, if you watch enough violence, something happens, doesn't it? You get desensitized to it. It doesn't bother you as much anymore as it did at first. And so people had seen at this point a lot of crucifixions, a lot of crucifixions. Jesus wasn't the only person crucified by the Romans in that in that place, in that particular time. So a lot of people would have seen crucifixions, and they could have grown hard, hardened to it, desensitized to it. And, and I would suggest to you something. I, my mom used to say this. She used to say, it's not good to watch a bunch of violence because it can desensitize us even to the effect of the crucifixion. Think about that. You have to be the, the arbiter of your your freedoms in Christ, and you have to let the Holy Spirit guide you in that. But these people were people who had been familiar with this, and yet something struck their heart in this moment as they saw Jesus suffer. They saw the interaction between him and the criminals. They saw him cry out to God. They saw the, the effect of the crucifixion and how he responded to it. And then it says, all those who knew him, they stood at a distance watching these things. These are all the witnesses, and it mentions uh, and the, the women who were there. And the reason it mentions them is because they're witnesses not only to the death of Christ, but also to the burial of Christ, and they're witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. So I don't know about you, but sometimes uh, it's, uh, I think it ought to be um, exciting to know. You know, sometimes people have hang-ups about, about women being in certain places of ministry, 
And I'd like you to see that the ones who are the first eyewitnesses to the death, burial, and resurrection, the first witnesses to it were the women who were there. And so we see that taking place, and they're witnesses to this. But what I I thought we might focus on this morning is one of the signs in particular. There's seven words in English. There's six in Greek. We 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 can say we have to use more words to say what's said there. But these words are more than the sum of its part. We can easily understand here that a curtain was torn. Notice it says that uh, these certain things took place here. Where are we at here in verse 20 or 40, 44? It says it was about noon. The sun stopped shining. And then the curtain of the temple, verse 45, was torn in two. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. And we can understand that a curtain was torn. Any kid who's grown up in a house with curtains can know what it means to see a curtain torn. But its meaning, which would have been obvious to the writers of the gospel, was recorded in the New Testament by other writers. And so the depth of of this comes to us like this, that there's the literal, a curtain was torn, but then there is more to it. How many would recognize that a curtain being torn is is just on the first level of meaning here. There's so much more taking place here. The fact that this curtain, this particular curtain, the curtain of the temple was torn. That very curtain was the curtain that kept everybody out and God in, if you will. Now, God wasn't locked in. God chose to limit his presence to a certain place. And so there was a temple uh, veil or curtain that remained there. And this is the very temple curtain that was torn when Jesus died on the cross. It tore. And Matthew tells us that it was torn from top to bottom. It gives us a it gives us this in a passive kind of way that suggests that God is the one who did it and the way that it was torn was from top to bottom. It shows us that God is the one who tore the curtain. What was he doing in tearing the curtain? That's what I want to dwell on this morning for for the next few minutes. And so this is the, the figurative meaning. The literal meaning is a, tur- a, a curtain was torn. A curtain was torn. <laughs> curtain was torn. That's literal. The figurative uh, meaning of it is it means that there is access to God. There's access to God. That God who, whose presence was contained by his own choice to a room where people could go in once a year and encounter his presence. That that... Uh, has now opened up, and there is access to God. Let me mention two words that help us understand this in more detail. There's access to God for anyone, okay, for anyone. In the past, it was access to God by a select few. The high priest could go beyond that curtain one time a year in order to offer sacrifices, and then even though he would have been the most religious person in all of Israel in terms of his office, it was off limits even to him. Okay? But then Jesus came and he did something and he opened that up. He opened up access to his presence. That place would have been what would have symbolized the very presence of God. In the old uh, tabernacle, it would have been somewhere around uh, square room 15 by 15 as they built the temple. The dimensions got scaled up, but... In the old tabernacle, it would have been 15 by 15. The rest of it would have gone 15 by 30. You can imagine this is about 45 feet right across here. The whole tabernacle would have fit from this end to that end. But there was a select area of it where you couldn't go. None of us could go. None of us could go because none of us, most of us are Gentiles, I would imagine. And even if you're Jewish, you've got to be of a certain tribe. And even if you're of a certain tribe, you've got to be of a certain lineage within that tribe. And even if you're a certain lineage... You've got to be of a certain family and a certain gender. And something changed when Jesus died on the cross, didn't it? Aren't you glad for that? That things have opened up. Something that we now take for granted that we can all have access to God. It's to anyone. We're no longer, uh, this access to God is no longer given to us through the priesthood of the old covenant. A symbolic meaning of the event which signified to the disciples of Jesus' day that they could now have access to the Father without priestly mediation since the Lord had entered into a spiritual holy of holies 
to make atonement once and for all for his people. So what Jesus did in dying on the cross is that what happened was that he went into the Holy Holies and he made a way for us. He represented us into the Holy Holies. And now we can access him without the need for the Levitical priesthood. And I don't know if you understand uh, all the implications of that. I don't know that I understand all the implications, but I know one of them is, is that I don't have to go through another priest besides Jesus to get to the Father. Are you with me? If you need to confess your sins, you don't have to go to a priest to confess your sins. You have to go to the high priest, Jesus himself. The Bible says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And the point that it's trying to make is that God as uh, God in flesh stands as the perfect mediator, being fully God, he can relate on God's behalf. Being fully man, he can relate to us as humans. You understand? And so he's the perfect um, nexus. He's the perfect place where the intersection of God and humanity comes together is in Jesus. If you want to meet with God, we don't go to a spiritual portal somewhere. We go to Jesus. He's the one way. And so I would encourage you today that you don't have to go through another priest. What's the purpose of a pastor then? A pastor acts like a shepherd. And, and so we, we teach the Bible, we preach the Bible, we talk about the things, we have oversight, and we try to guide the church, and we, if there's a problem, we try to address it. But you don't go to God through the pastor. Come on, not true? You're not going to hurt my feelings because it's in the Bible. You don't go to, to God through the pastor. You go through Jesus. Everybody has direct access to God through Christ. It's yours. So we don't have to go through some kind of... Th- this, I think, is the most glorious thing, is that he's eradicated the need for other intermediaries. Okay, Some people think you've got to go through saints, or you've got to go through Mary, or your priest. Not if we're going to be biblical... The Bible tells us we only have to go through Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad for that? So today, when you go home and you want to talk to the Father, you don't need to call me and say, Pastor, can you pray for me? You can call me if you want to, but I'll probably be taking a nap. But you can call me if you want to, and I'll pray for you, but you have the same access to God that I have through Jesus. Thank the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? So it's available to anyone and everyone. And I'm going to suggest to you today that you don't get any special merit for being um, of the Levitical tribe. You don't get any special merit of being uh, in the priestly uh, caste of Israel. You don't get any special merit for being Jewish. You don't get any special merit for growing up in a Christian family. The thing that gets us in is Jesus alone. Okay, aren't you glad for that? I am glad for that. All the benefits that are ours, Paul said this, that when it comes to pursuing Christ, whatever was to my gain, I consider loss. I can't rely on any of that. I rely upon him. We stand in the proper relationship to the Father through Christ. When we're in Christ, the Bible makes this clear. If you want to do an excellent study, do an excellent study in the New Testament of in Christ. And what that means is that when we enter into covenant relationship with Christ, all the benefits, all the relationship that Christ has with the Father now becomes ours because of our relationship to him. He's our high priest. We enter in through him. We're enfranchised into sonship or daughtership through his sonship. Okay, And that, I think, is something uh, worth celebrating. So it's for anyone. The veil which from one point of view kept God and mankind apart, can be thought of from another point of view as bringing them together. For it was one and the same veil, which on one side was in contact with the glory of God, and on the other side, the need of men and women. So in our Lord, Godhead and manhood were brought together. He's the true daysman or umpire who can lay his hand upon both because he shares the nature of both. And by his death... It could be added, the veil of his flesh was was torn in two, and uh, a new way was consecrated through it by which human beings may become may come to God. okay So that's the first part of this is that because of his death and that veil being torn, anyone can come. 
And a lot of different kinds of people from all over the world have come. Do you know that? That in terms of religious population, I know we can't know exact numbers on this, only God knows, but the world's leading religion in terms of people trusting in Christ. And again, that God's going to have to know the exact number on that. But from every tongue and tribe and language, from every region around the globe, people are putting their faith in Christ as Lord and Savior and coming to know the peace of God and the righteousness of God and the forgiveness of God. And anyone can come. I'm so thankful for that. The second thing that uh, relates to this is that we have access to God any place. It's for anyone, but it's also for any place. I don't know if you've thought about this, but we don't have to go to the Temple Mount anymore to have contact with God. That would be expensive, wouldn't it? If we had to travel over there and set foot on the Temple Mount, there's something in the way right now anyway, but to step foot on the Temple Mount in order to have real contact with God. What a a tragic thing that would be to have to have a localized religion. And the Old Testament is for a teaching purpose. God was still the God of the whole earth. He still had omnipresence. He was still everywhere present. But in order for him to communicate uh, who he is as a person, he localized himself around a certain people. And when the time was right, he came out from behind the curtain. Are you with me? The curtain was torn. Something else took place. Joel Green and his commentary challenges uh, the view that it only is one way, uh, that he believes that there's a cessation as the temp- for the temple being the center of God's activity. In Green's view, the curtain tearing signifies the end of the temple's dominant role as a sacred symbol. We don't have to go to a temple anymore. We are the temple. We don't have to go to a place anymore. Now, some people have translated that to mean we shouldn't go to church or we don't need to go to church. Church is superfluous. We don't need it anymore. We don't go to church for that reason. We don't go to church so that we can get into the presence of God. We go to church so we can experience the presence of God together. Are you with me on that? That it's not coming here like you enter through this door and suddenly you're transformed into a magical universe where God's presence is. Wherever you are, if you're a true believer, the Holy Spirit is with you. You're the Ark of the Covenant wherever you go. The presence of God walks with you wherever you go if you're trusting in Christ. And so it's about any place. And so um, Joel Green goes on to talk about how he believes that what's pictured in the tearing of the tabernacle curtain or the temple curtain is that... God is pictured as coming out of his temple to reach out to all. He can't be contained within it anymore. And so Jesus' death represents the ultimate opening up of God's way or the way to God. And the emphasis is not only on the atonement aspect, which it is, but also on God's access to all people. So I think of it this way. When the, the curtain was torn, the Spirit of God began to be unleashed on all mankind. So we're not running around afraid of the devil. Come on, are you with me? God's presence goes with us wherever we go. We don't have to run to the church to get safe from the attacks of the enemy. Wherever you go, the power of God goes with you. His presence is unleashed on mankind. And this was the prayer of even Solomon when he built his temple. No temple we build can contain you. Heaven is your throne and earth is your footstool. What can we do to build a house for you? This is only symbolic. Solomon recognized that. Some people forgot that. And then Stephen came along and he started talking with the same kind of language in Acts chapter 7. And he said uh, some of the same things. Heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. And everybody got mad and wanted to kill him because they thought we hear the same kind of thread running through your preaching as we heard from Jesus. Right, Tear down this temple in three days, I'll raise it up again. Jesus prophesied, and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you. And he looks at the temple, he says, There's coming a time when not one stone will be left upon another. And he's talking about a future destruction. And what we need to understand is that we don't have to go to the Holy Land to experience the holiness of God. His presence has been unleashed on all mankind. 
God's presence is every bit as real. I know I'm going to get in trouble with somebody here. His presence is every bit as real here as it is at the Jordan River. It's every bit as real right now as it is on the Temple Mount. Because God is not a God of epicenter locations anymore. His presence is here. His Holy Spirit is on the loose. Come on. Isn't that exciting? And His Holy Spirit is living in us. Hebrews chapter 10 reflects upon this in some more teaching in a more teaching way because what Luke says basically opens up the conversation that the 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 veil was torn. So we know the veil was torn. Okay? Uh, but explaining what that means sometimes it takes a little bit more and so in Hebrews 10 verse 20 it says that we enter by a new and a living way opened up through us to us through the curtain that is his body opened up to us through the curtain that is his body and so this is part of the two conditions which have been met by Jesus which allows the great privilege to enter the first condition is that uh, has been met because his blood has been sprinkled and now a new and living way has been opened up for us so that we can experience him and that new and living way is his body you can see the uh, the picture here a little bit the curtain was torn, and his body was torn. The curtain's torn, and his body's torn. It's not an exact parallel. If we press the metaphor too far, we get off base. Okay, Because if you think back, in the past, the curtain kept people out. Jesus wasn't an obstacle to people coming to God. So what Luke is trying to do, and other writers, the writer to Hebrews is trying to do, is help us to know that in his death and in the tearing of that temple, Jesus' body acts like the tearing of that curtain that lets people in to the presence of God. I think this is rich and this is strong. You know that uh, throughout Scripture, Jesus pictures himself as things like the way, the truth, and the life. The way. Okay? Uh, this is another word for a road. A road leads to somewhere. Okay? He says, I'm the way. In John chapter 14, he talks about being the door and the gate. That opens up to a an area, doesn't it? Like a room. And then he pictures himself, or he's pictured here as a curtain. The curtain, his flesh being torn. That that is the uh, place of access to the holy presence of God. And then he's also pictured, as in Hebrews, as our great high priest. This is also talking about access. That by his, the great high priest, we have access to the Father. These are all means of access. And the way it takes you to a place, the door opens to an area, the curtain to a room, the high priest opens the way to God. Jesus is all of these. These are the illustrations that describe for us what Christ has accomplished for us. Today, I I wanted to encourage us that we have access to the Father. Sometimes, I think we know this generally, but sometimes I think we forget this. One way we forget this is we forget what a privilege we have in knowing Jesus. That we've we've forgotten all the old difficulty that used to be there. Like with some of our technologies, you know, when you used to want to get a hold of somebody, you had to call their house and leave a message or something. Right? There's old ways of doing things that we're like, man, we can easily do that now. We can knock that out. Or if we want to send pictures, can you think of like wanting to send pictures to somebody in another country? Remember the old, some of you are too young to even know this, but there used to be these old lightweight envelopes that said airmail on them, and they had red and blue stripes. And if you wanted to send a letter, you had to get it as lightweight as you possibly could, and then you have to go to the post office and pay a great price and wait for several weeks for it to get where it was going. And now we snap a photo with our phone and like that, it's there. It's amazing. And we forget how hard things used to be. And we forget in our relationship with God how hard it used to be to have this relationship with him. We take it for granted that he's made it so easy for us. Easy is not the same as cheap, right? It's not cheap what we have. It was paid at a great price, the blood of Christ. But it's simple. 
It's yours now if you'll put your faith in Christ. So I think that's one aspect of it is that we often forget how hard it used to be and what a privilege it now is. Now, in a simple prayer, we can come before him. Folks, God is not trying to restrict people from his presence. Sin keeps us from his presence. It does. But he's done everything. He's gone the extra mile to make sure that we could have access to him. Sometimes I think we we think in terms of this, especially if you grew up in a more holiness-type church, God's looking for you to mess up. He secretly wants you to mess up. He's ready to strike you when you mess up. And God is a just God. And there are consequences to sin. Would you agree? Okay, but do you think God hopes that we'll fail? Do you think he hopes that we'll not repent? I think what he's longing for, and every indication from his behavior shows it's true, he's longing for us to come into relationship with himself. He's He sent his son to die for our sins. That's how much. That's the proof. We don't, we don't base our uh, faith on our feelings. If we do, we're going to feel on Monday that God doesn't love us, and on Tuesday that he kind of loves us, but maybe not. And on Wednesday, we get a little shot in the arm with Wednesday evening service, and okay, God loves us again. And then Thursday, we're down in the dumps, and God doesn't love us. No, we base it on the facts of what God has done. God demonstrated, Romans 5, 8, his love for us in this, Christ died for us. John 3.16 says it. We sometimes read it a little differently, but God so loved the world means God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only son. Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Then, having died for our sins, he sends Christians out into the world to tell people the good news. The kingdom of God has come. God has shown grace Goodwill towards men. He sent out his grace into the world to save you. You don't have to live in hopelessness. You don't have to die hopeless. You have to die in your sins anymore. You don't have to think that death is the end of it all anymore. You don't have to put your confidences in fake gods anymore. You can know the true God. And so he sends people out, sometimes at great cost to themselves, sometimes at the cost of their lives. Many witnesses went to their death trying to bring Jesus to a place. God doesn't want us to get saved. And then, when those witnesses go, he sends the accompanying of the Holy Spirit. And if you're saved, you know that Holy Spirit who harasses you in your sins. Can anybody relate to that? Like, he got all over you and convicted you of your sins. You didn't like that you were a sinner anymore. You felt like you don't want to go to the altar, but you couldn't help but go into the altar because you just wanted to be free of the pestering, that gentle, loving harassment that says, you know you, you need to. Why don't you? You know your sin is standing in the way, but I've done everything to take care of that. Just come. This is the God we serve. He's a loving God who wants to call us into relationship with himself, but we will not. Just like Jesus. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you would not. I sent you prophets, but you killed them. It's God's heart. He's calling to us. I want you. And I've gone, I've gone the distance to have you. Will you only? He won't force you. He won't make you. I don't believe he does. What I believe he does is he gently compels he brings us a place where we want to, but then we have this moment where we have to decide, do I want to follow Jesus or do I want to do my own thing? So he compels us with his Holy Spirit. Does God want you? Yes. He's opened up the curtain, and he said, come in. And not only has he said, come in, I'm coming out in a big way, and I'm bringing salvation with me. So what does drawing near to God look like? Because that's the whole intention of this. In Hebrews, the constant um, obsession throughout Hebrews is drawing near, drawing near to God, drawing near to God, drawing near to God, over and over again. Come near to him. 
And in one place it, it says, since we have a great high priest, let us draw near. Another place it says, uh, draw near to worship. And it talks about some different aspects of that. So what does is, what is drawing near look like? God doesn't want you to be far away. This is not so much a geographical nearness as it is a relational nearness. Do you understand the difference between those two? You can be sitting next to somebody and be a million miles from them. You can have a mountain between you. If there's unforgiveness, if there's hatred, nearness is not there, even though you may even be touching. Okay? But you may have somebody that you're close friends with that lives around the world, and you're near to them. If they're going through something, God's Spirit is putting them on your heart. You love them. You care about them. You know you'd do anything for them. And there's a nearness. And in fact, I would suggest to you, this is one of the beauties of the Christian life, is that we have people that we know all around the world that we're near to because of Jesus. That mystical union that happens because we've all come to Jesus. We've come together. He wants us to draw near to him. Well, the direction in drawing near is the same for everyone. We draw near to God. But the instructions may look a little different depending on what our relationship is like. To come to him is to approach him, to know him, to receive, to worship, to serve. And so if we're in a place today where we don't know him, or if we've been away from him, Drawing near is going to be through acknowledging our wrongs and trusting him to forgive us and lead us to do what's right. Okay, This is, we call it repentance. It's changing our mind and drawing near. And I want to suggest to you today, not suggest, proclaim to you today, forgiveness to those who sincerely repent. I don't care how far you've gone. If you feel the drawing of the Holy Spirit, if you'll respond to him today, he can bring you back into fellowship. Today, you can be drawn near to him. So once you've done that, he'll lead us to do what's right. And then drawing near to God is the birthright of every Christian. If you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Christ, if we know him already, then coming to him is the living out of a committed relationship. We come to him, we draw near to him in prayer. Um, Come boldly, it says in Hebrews, uh, boldly before the throne of grace that you may find help and favor in your time of need. Okay, we come to him um, not only in prayer, but we come to him to live for him and to know him better. We can't stand up to the challenges of the world as Christians without God's help. Okay, it's a it's a difficult time, and it's getting more difficult. And our country is not sliding towards God; it's sliding away from God, and it's going to be harder and harder to be a Christian in today's world. That's going to be the truth. And I think I think if you um, bring out the Christian meth- message, it stands up to anything in the marketplace, in the public arena. The gospel will stand up to any other philosophy. It will. But if we're going to do this effectively, we're going to live the Christian, if you're going to raise your kids to be Christians in today's world, and, and it's not all up to you, they have to make their own decision. But if you're going to do it, you're going to have to do it with God's help. So we have to come to him. We need him. Today, that's simply maybe in prayer, come to him in worship, you draw near and tell him uh, the beauty of who he is and what he's meant to us. We've done that already in our worship today, and we're going to do it again for a few moments. Um, we come to him to offer our lives. So depending on where you are, I want to proclaim to you, to all of us, the curtain has been torn, and it's a sign to you to come near to God. Stand with me if you would. Thanks for your gracious attention today. I'd like to invite you to respond to the Lord this morning. Maybe you're hearing this message and you're thinking, I don't have any relationship with God at all. I don't know why he'd want to welcome me. I'm just busy living my life. Well, he loves you, and I dare you to find out what you truly look like, your life looks like in him. I challenge you to, to do that, that. I really believe that we never know who we really are until we come to God. 
And then we know who we were truly created to be because we've had that X factor that's been missing in our lives until we come to him. Come to him today. If you've not done that, you can pray a simple prayer. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you're offended by that word, then join the club. All of us are sinners. All of us are either sinners who've been forgiven or we remain in our sins. And if you're a sinner who's forgiven, he calls you by a new name. He calls you saint. That You've been forgiven of your sins, and we don't have to live in those anymore. We don't have to maintain the label anymore. We can be sons and daughters of God. We don't have to perpetually be sinners is what I'm saying. But I'm saying at one time, all of us, We're dead in our transgressions and sins and the wickedness of our heart. And we joined with everybody else on the way to destruction. But then for many of us here, Jesus came along and interrupted that. And uh, we said yes to him, and it changed the course of our lives. Today, say to God, if you're sensing that drawing or you want to, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. And because of his death on the cross, because of his bloodshed, you can be forgiven. For the rest of us, I would encourage you, if you're coming back to God because you've been distant, draw near to him through Jesus. Jesus, forgive us of our sins. He said if we confess it, he's faithful and just to forgive us. He'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means none of it remains. Access is ours through Jesus. Maybe it's to worship. Maybe it's to find your life's direction. But draw near to God because the curtain's been open. And the access is to anyone and anywhere. And anywhere is here right now. That's right here. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.